0: Last week, we started our series in 1 Samuel. We're going to be working through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We left off with Samuel being called by God to be a prophet to Israel, to restore God's word to his people, even though Israel had been living in rebellion against God. Um, So uh, at this point in time, Israel is a mess. Uh, And what's about to happen is that God is about to clean house. Uh, And he's going to start by carrying out the judgment on Eli's household that he had promised in chapter 3 that we talked about uh, last week. Uh, But what we're going to see is that God is going to clean house and he's going to go to great lengths to draw his people back to him again. God's not just going to clean house in Israel just to stick it to them or just to... Let out to, to vent a little bit. That's not how God operates. Uh, God has a purpose, even in this chastening that we're going to see uh, with Israel. Um, so let me let me pray real quick, and then again, we're going to be covering. Um, uh, about, we're going to be covering technically four chapters this morning, I, so I'm not going to read it because we're going to come telling the story more than, right, so some of you are like worried, oh no, we're going to be here until 5 p.m. No, don't worry, we're not, we're not going to go verse by verse, but, four chapters. Here, um, but uh, so I'm not going to read the whole text, but let me pray and then we're going to jump into uh, the story. God, uh, I thank you for this morning, I thank you for uh, this opportunity we have to gather together as your people. And uh, I pray that you would help me now uh, as I preach. Um, I pray that you would help me to just uh, move out of the way so that uh, everybody here sees Jesus and not me. Uh, and I pray that you help me to rightly divide the word of truth. And I pray that if there's anybody here that does not know you, Jesus, as their Savior, who's not born again. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that you would open their eyes. Just give them spiritual sight. And I pray that you would spur the rest of us on to continue to pursue you, to know you more this morning. Uh, and that we would just have the opportunity to hold your glory and your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, have you guys ever esti- underestimated somebody or not given maybe a person of authority their due respect and then kind of, you know, maybe you've been a little bit too casual around an important person and gotten put in your place? That ever happened to anybody? There's uh, I, I, I there's, I've had that happen to me before. But one of my favorite examples of this, you can actually find lots of them on YouTube. It's the Queen's Guard. Whenever people go and mess with the Queen's Guard in England, uh, and so you know, people will go up and they'll try to mess with them. And, and I have a video clip of of, uh, of one of the example. the examples. <laughs> his, his gun is jammed. Can you <laughs> There's. Yeah, can do <laughs> oh, you can do that slide. There's uh. There's a lot of videos like that online, and they're really funny. So if you get bored one afternoon and you want to entertain yourself, you go into YouTube and Google uh, "queen's guard," you know, yelling at people or queen's guard attacking people, and it's it's good fun actually. There's a lot of a lot of uh, funny examples, but it's an example of uh, of how sometimes we get put in our place when we approach someone in authority in the wrong way, in a disrespectful way. Right? We don't come with the proper reverence uh, whenever we approach somebody. Uh, we with authority. Um, as we work through this portion of 1 Samuel this morning, we're going to see how not to approach God. We're going to see several ways that we should not approach God. And then we're going to see the right way to approach God there towards the end. Um, so, picking up in chapter 4, what's happening is that Israel is about to go into battle against their mortal enemy, the Philistines. And it does not go as planned for Israel. 1 uh, Samuel chapter 4, verse 2. Says this. It says that the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So that's obviously not a good outcome, and at this point, the Israelites, what they do is they come together to lick their wounds and to figure out what to do next. And so in verse 3, we read this. It says, When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? That's a good question. That's a good question to ask. It's interesting, too, that they that they ask, why has the Lord defeated us? You notice that? They understand that, that God is involved in their defeat. That Okay, obviously, uh, we know that the Lord is normally for us, and that he's the one that gives us victory. So if we didn't get victory, that means that God has not allowed us to have this victory. So what's going on? Really good question. The only problem is, is they come up with the wrong answer. <laughs> the answer they should have come up with is they should have remembered Deuteronomy 28... Verses 15 and 25, way back a couple hundred years earlier, where God says this, he says to the Israelites, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. So they asked a good question, but they forgot what the Lord said in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They came up with the wrong answer. In fact, they came up with a disastrous answer. Look at the second half of verse 3. Here's what they said. They said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So let me give you a little bit of background on the Ark of the Covenant here and and what exactly the Ark of the Covenant is, all right? So God told Moses to make the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the wilderness. And there's actually a picture uh, up here on the screen behind me. You can see this is what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, okay? So the Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold inside the Ark. Uh, There were the Ten Commandments. There was some manna, Uh, And Aaron's staff that had budded were also inside the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, And then uh, this was where the the presence of God dwelt. So between the two uh, angels, the cherubim, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that's where the presence of God dwelt. Now, obviously, God is omnipresent, right? So uh, the presence of God is not confined to one place. But symbolically, for the people of Israel, the presence of God dwelt on what was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was that pure gold uh, top uh, that's on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and this is where the presence of God dwelt. And so uh, when the people of Israel uh, made the Ark of the Covenant exactly how God had instructed them... Uh, The ark went before them while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, And then when they crossed over, the ark was with them when they crossed the Jordan River and the Lord part of the Jordan River. And the ark was with them when they walked around Jericho seven times and the walls came tumbling down. You remember the old song, correct? The the children's song. So the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And then uh, what, what they would do is that whenever they settled in the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant was in uh, the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And only one person one time a year could enter into that place, and it was the high priest. And there was, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but uh, there was a lot of things that had to be done even before he could do that because the very presence of God uh, dwelt there. All right, so that gives you a little bit of background. So here's what Israel's doing. They're saying, hey, maybe the reason we lost to the Philistines is because we didn't bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe if we bring this good luck charm with us to battle, that's what will help us. That will give us the victory. Now, what's ironic here, let's remember from last week what's going on, okay? So, Hophni and Phinehas are the two priests before the Lord. We already learned about how wicked these two guys are, right? So, they obviously, it says that uh, in chapter uh, 2, they didn't even know the Lord. So the priests don't even know the Lord, and we see in verse 4 that it's, guess who's bringing the ark out to battle? Guess who's carrying it? Hophni and Phinehas, of all the people that they could have asked to carry the ark into battle, it's Hophni and Phinehas that are carrying it out. So, ironically, you've got the people of Israel who are living in idolatry, they're completely ignoring God's commands, and they're carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, which is talking about the Ten Commandments, which are inside the Ark. <laughs> the commandments that they're ignoring and they're running this thing out to battle, and they're just thinking, hey, this is what'll work. God's gonna bless us and give us victory when we just run the Ark of the Covenant out there. I mean, when you think about what they're doing, it's it's very presumptuous of them, isn't it? Very arrogant. They're about to learn, Israel's about to learn that we should never approach God's presence presumptuously. So uh, the results of the battle are catastrophic. Look at verse 10 and 11. This is what happens. It says that the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas... Die. So uh, the, the 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 Ark of the Covenant is captured. Hophni and Phineas die, which is what the Lord had pronounced was going to happen in chapter three, uh, anyways. Uh, there's a great defeat, and what happens at this point is that messengers run back to town uh and they uh tell uh the people in the town what's happening. uh Eli you remember Hophni and Phineas's father who was the high priest at the time once he hears the news uh he actually falls over right there on the spot and uh passes away and then uh Phineas's wife uh once she hears the news she was pregnant uh and she immediately goes into labor uh and she actually uh passes away uh during childbirth but right before she does that She gives her child a name. She names her child Ichabod. Now, if you think the name sounds bad, just wait till you hear what it means. It means the glory has departed from Israel. So God's presence, God's blessing had departed from Israel at this point. Now, what does this have to do with us? There's some important application here for us as the church. God is not impressed by self-effort or by rituals. You can't live a life of sin and then carry your good deeds or your church attendance or your prayers before God, like the ark, expecting them to save you. They're not going to work. God will not bless you if you live in unrepentant sin. And it's amazing how many people presume that he will. Right? Right? Um, we, we can't just live in unrepentant sin. And, and uh, you know, oftentimes uh, I meet people uh, who are part of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church will teach them as long as you just go to confession and, you know, on a regular basis and you perform the sacraments. and But we, we end up treating those things like carrying the ark behind us, right? We, we can just kind of live how we want and ignore God's commands and we'll just carry our ark into battle with us. And that will be our good luck charm. It'll be our cure all. But it doesn't work like that. You see, religion tries to harness God's power to use it when we need it. But God is not a power we can control or use. He's a king we obey. What are you treating like an ark in your life? What are you depending on to curry favor from God? If your answer is not the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then it's the wrong answer. That's the only way that we can have any sort of favor with God. We're going to get there soon, but despite God's presence departing from Israel, he's not going to abandon his people. The glory of God has departed Israel, but he's about to show up in Philistine territory, and he's coming back. Remember, God's never going to abandon or forsake his people, but he will chasten them, and he will teach them. And he will remind them how desperately they need him. And that's what we're going to see happen throughout this story. So the glory departs from Israel, and now the glory of God's about to show up in Philistine territory. So when we move into chapter 5, what happens is that the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant, and they are really impressed with themselves. They're pretty excited. And the Philistines had a god, uh, an idol named Dagon. And Dagon had a temple. And so in the Philistines' mind, they thought, hey, our God Dagon has defeated the God of Israel, so we're going to set this, this thing, this ark thing up as a trophy. And so they they waltz, they bring the ark into Dagon and they set him up. They set the ark up before Dagon, their their idol, uh, in the temple, and they're they're pretty excited about this. But they're in for a big surprise. Look at chapter five, verse two. What happens next? and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> now, if you if you notice a little bit of humor here, and almost a little bit of saltiness by the author of 1 Samuel, it's there. He's definitely being a little bit salty. He's kind of poking a little bit of fun here at, at Dagon. He actually says that they had to put him back in his place, right? They had to set Humpty Dumpty back... You know, back again, they couldn't put them back together again, right? And so there's this there's this sense of like these people are ridiculous, right? This God, and you notice that uh, the next morning, uh, Dagon's head and his hands are removed. That's a clear message. Dagon, what, what the message means is that is that Dagon cannot hear or see or speak, and he has no hands, he has no power to to or ability to perform any acts. Unfortunately for the Philistines, they have defied the wrong God. They've defied the only living God, and it's about to get worse for them. Look at verse 6. It says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Uh, Most likely what that's referring to is something like the bubonic plague. Um, We're not exactly sure what that was, but whatever it was, it was not good. Uh, And it was not something that we would want. (laughs) Um, So I want you to notice the the compare and contrast here. This is very intentional that we're seeing that God's doing between Dagon and Yahweh, Israel's God. Dagon has no hands. While in verse six, it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines. Right. And not only that, but the word heavy is the same Hebrew word for the word glory. The same Hebrew word. So the glory of the Lord has departed Israel, and the Philistines are being introduced to it in the form of God's heavy hand. God's glorious hand is being demonstrated in Israel. So at this point, the Philistines have different cities. And... Uh, the people of Ashdod are like, get this thing out of here. We don't want anything to do with it. And so they pass it off to uh, another city in, Phil- in uh, Philistia. And uh, the same thing happens there. And they keep passing around the Ark of the Covenant like a hot potato. Things are not going well. And so uh, we we get a summary in verse 11 of chapter 5. It says that. Uh, they, they, they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and they said send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people for there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city the hand of God was very heavy there I think one of the clear lessons here is that for anyone thinking of defying Yahweh just don't Never approach God's power defiantly. God wants Israel and the Philistines to understand that he's the one true God. He has no rival or equal. It makes no sense to turn to anything else when he gives us everything that we have. You know, sadly, you'd think we'd learn as people, as human beings, but idol creation is alive and well today. The Philistines, they thought that Dagon provided their crops. He was the agricultural god. He was their chief god. And so he thought, they thought that Dagon was what, what made their crops grow. And you see, we too make an idol of anything that we turn to besides God to give us safety or comfort or pleasure or contentment. A good way to identify what you worship, uh, one good way is to ask, what makes you angry? What makes you really angry? Maybe it's when you're not recognized or noticed or you don't get, you know, uh, you know, you don't get applauded for something. So your idol could be your self-image. Or maybe it's when you don't get to be in charge and you're not calling the shots. Maybe you worship at the altar of control. Another way to identify what we worship, what our idols may be, is where is just to look where our time and money and our thoughts are going. If you spend time and money looking at inappropriate images online, you've made a god of sexual immorality. But here's the deal. Just like Dagon, all idols are powerless in the face of Yahweh. They promise what they cannot deliver. They cannot speak or hear or act. They cannot satisfy you or protect you. Like Dagon, they are dead. Turn from them and look to God. As chapter 6 progresses, what the Philistines finally did, they finally decide that the Ark is hazardous to their health, and so they're like, we've got to get this thing out of here. And so they come up with a plan. They make uh, five, uh, this is interesting, um, they make five golden tumors and five golden mice as um, commemorative gifts for the Lord or something. It's kind of uh, an interesting um, uh, plan that they come up with to kind of offer or appease, they think, they're going to appease Yahweh. And so they send the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord back to Israel on a cart pulled by milk cows with their uh, golden gifts uh, enclosed inside. And as the milk cows made their way into Beth Shemesh, which was uh, one of the towns in Israelite territory with the Ark of the Covenant in tow, there is initially a celebration by the people of Israel, but unfortunately that doesn't last long. It appears that Israel still hasn't been humbled. They're still not repentant. Look at verse 19 to 21 of chapter 6. It says that the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, this is a confusing text because it appears harsh that God would strike down 70 men simply for looking at the ark. Now, that's what it, it says on the surface, right? Right. But the Hebrew expression, looked upon, um, seems to, to me have more of a connotation of staring. That they were, they were staring at the Ark of the Covenant. They were um, gloating over it. Uh, let's put things in perspective real quick to try to understand this. Um, in Leviticus chapter 16, uh, we learn how serious the presence of God is. The high priest, like I said earlier, was the only one who could appear before the presence of God in the tabernacle, and he could go one time a year. It was the day of atonement. And Leviticus 16 outlines the very involved process of all the sacrifices and all the ritual washings and everything like that 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 Aaron at the time, the high priest, had to do just so that he could enter God's presence on behalf of Israel without dropping dead. Okay? So it was a very, very involved... There were multiple bulls and goats that had to be sacrificed. And uh, Aaron, on the Day of Atonement, would sprinkle the blood of a bull on the mercy seat uh, for the sins of Israel. Everything had to be done down to the last detail. But why? What's, what's up with all that? Like, what? I mean, if you go read through the book of Leviticus, you'll see these very detailed instructions. Why is that, all of that there? Why is God so concerned about being so meticulous about this is to show the incredible gulf between God and sinners between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man this is why by the way taking God's name in vain is so serious did you know that Israel Israelites wouldn't even say the name Yahweh or write it out Right? They were they treated the name so reverently, and they were so afraid of, of of mistreating it or misusing or taking the Lord's name in vain that they literally they wouldn't even speak it out loud. And yet today we toss Jesus' name around flippantly. Oh, it's no big deal. That's that's what the seventy men at Bethshemesh thought too. blasphemy is serious. Are you treating God's name as holy, or are you careless with it? It's something we don't think about a lot. Isn't it? The men of Beth Shemesh they made the mistake of approaching God like like a buddy. They approached God carelessly, like He's the man upstairs, right? But God is not like us. God's presence is dangerous for anyone whose heart is not right with Him. We should not approach His presence carelessly. Now, all of this that we've been talking about to this point, I hope that there's some tension built up in your heart. Right now, I hope that you're a little bit like, a little bit uneasy, kind of like shifting in your seat, you know? a little uncomfortable, and maybe your seat's even feeling a little bit hot. Because this is what makes Chapter Seven so glorious. It's what makes the gospel so glorious. God is an absolutely holy God. Mm, amen. And He absolutely—I I mean, one second in the presence of God, apart from His grace, it's over for us. Mm. We can't stand before Him. Right. And yet, in chapter 7, we see God's long-suffering and patience and His mercy again and again and again. See, 20 years are going to pass from the time that the ark returned to Israel, that we just read about, until Israel was finally ready to change. 20 years go by, and finally, they get to a point where they're ready. Look at what happens. Samuel addresses Israel in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Samuel said to the house of Israel, he said, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. So... Samuel gathers all the people of Israel and they make a commitment to turn from uh, their, uh, their sins and from their idols and to repent. And right on cue, right as this is happening, the Philistines, they come up against Israel and they begin to surround Israel and they're about to attack. And Israel is terrified at this point. And so they ask Samuel to call on the Lord on their behalf. Verses 8 to 10 says this, says the the people of Israel said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. I just wanted to point out the contrast between what we saw in chapter 4 and what we just saw here in chapter 7. In chapter 4, Israel thought that they could use God and keep on sinning. Do you see how how different the outcome of the battle was this time when Israel came to God in humility and repentance? What was the difference? It was victory. God fought on their behalf. The hand of the Lord was no longer against them, but for them and against their enemies. Samuel does three things to show Israel how to come to God. He calls them to repentance. He offers a sacrifice on their behalf. And he intercedes for them. We spent a lot of time talking about how not to come to God today. We shouldn't come to God presumptuously or defiantly or carelessly. We've seen all those examples. God's presence is certainly dangerous for sinners. Uh, this reminded me as I read the story about, I don't know if you've seen the Lion or Read the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's uh, story. And there's a point. Uh, in the book where Lucy, one of the characters, is asking another character, Mr. Beaver, about Aslan, who, uh, the lion, Aslan the lion, who represents God uh, in the story. And uh, she she asked Mr. Beaver about Aslan, uh, is he safe? And here's what Mr. Beaver said. Mr. Beaver, Lucy, said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that picture. Of course, he's safe, but he's good. He's the king. God humbled Israel until they were ready to turn to him. And as soon as they did, he provided a substitute sin offering in their place. And he rescued them from their enemies. But it gets even better for us, church. It gets even better than that. See, Jesus is the better Samuel. Jesus is the better Samuel just like Samuel called the people of Israel to repent, Jesus showed up on the scene preaching a message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just like Samuel offered up a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel, he offered up a lamb. Jesus went further and he came as the sacrificial lamb. And he offered up his own body on the cross as a substitute for our sins, for the sins of the entire world. Jesus went (laughs) to the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve. The blood of the lamb back in the Old Testament was sprinkled on the mercy seat to keep God's wrath toward sinners at bay. But the blood of Jesus was sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven to make a permanent way for us to come into God's presence freely without fear of condemnation and without fear of death. Jesus made one sacrifice for all time. We don't need anymore. That's right. We don't need any more sacrifices. There's no more blood that needs to be shed. That's right. There's one sacrifice for all time because yeah. he's perfect. Amen. And 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 it gets even better than that because not only did Jesus give himself for us as the sacrificial lamb, but he didn't stay in the grave. Yeah three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And you know what that means? That means he's alive. He's seated at the right hand of God and he's living to make intercession for us right now. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he is interceding for you every second of every day. He prays for you when you're asleep. He prays for you when you're awake. He is watching you and fighting your battles for you. And see the enemy that we're up against is not the Philistines. The enemy that we're up against is death and condemnation, and only Jesus can defeat that enemy for you. And all you have to do is repent and believe in the gospel that we just talked about, and you'll be saved. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, and you'll be saved. Chapter 7 closes with Samuel setting up a monument to help Israel remember this day. Look at verse 12, and then we'll close with this last little point. It says, Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mitzvah and Shin, and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Till now the Lord has helped us. That word Ebenezer means stone of help. We were singing the song earlier, Come Now Fountain. Some of you probably were singing that word and have no idea what it means. It sounds like an old man from uh, that Christmas movie, Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Mm -hmm. It's not what we're talking about in that song. Yeah. It's 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 referring to this. It's referring to a monument it, it, to help us remember, mm-hmm. remember how the Lord to this point has helped us. Yeah. Yeah. Samuel put that stone up because he understood our condition as human beings, like like the song "Come Thou Found says. We are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Yeah. Prone to leave the God yeah. I love. We need reminders. Yeah. We forget. We have spiritual amnesia, right? I would encourage you to, to, to go home and raise your Ebenezer today. What I mean by that is go home and remember. It's helpful to have visual reminders sometimes. Maybe for you that might look like going and just writing down in a journal all the ways that God has helped you to this point. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of times we can fall into complaining and thinking about all the ways that uh, God's not doing what we want Him to do in the timing that we want Him to do it. But what about all the ways that God has been faithful to you up to this point. You're still breathing, aren't you? You're still saved by grace, aren't you? You still have eternal life, don't you? Yes, sir. Raise your ebony. Amen. Maybe for you it's even like doing some artwork. I'm not artistic, so I can't. (laughs) And I wish I could. But it might look like just doing some artwork and, and using that as a time of worship for you before the Lord. But perhaps the greatest way that God has given us to remember The greatest way to raise our Ebenezer today is the Lord's Supper. Jesus, when uh, when he instituted the Lord's Supper with the disciples in the book of Luke, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, it's not the only reason we do the Lord's Supper, but one of the reasons we do the Lord's Supper is to remember and to proclaim the Lord's death again until he comes. It's to remember and to confess our sin, to put Jesus on the cross, and to repent of any sin that we might have in our lives today, just to get right before the Lord. It's to remember His body that was broken and His blood that was shed for us so that we can repent and so that we can be forgiven of our sins. The whole reason we're here this morning, without that body broken and that blood shed, we might as well pack up and go home. What are we doing here? When the Philistines surround you, when the fear of death and condemnation are, are trying to bang down the door of your heart, remember the blood that cleanses and the resurrection that saves. We don't need to turn to anywhere else. You don't need to turn to idols. Dagon is dead. So are all the other idols. Jesus is alive. Amen. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take the Lord's Supper in unity as a church family. I want us to to humble ourselves together, confessing that Jesus is Lord and worshiping him with all of our hearts.